On Wednesday, June 15th, the Southern Baptist Convention finished their second day of the annual meeting, bringing the convention to an end for the entire year. I was joined earlier this week by Mitchell Hawley to talk about day one of the annual meeting, and Mitch is back with me again. So Mitch, thanks for joining me to talk through more about the Southern Baptist Convention meeting. Uh, It's really great to be here, although um, I'm guessing our listeners are going to be pretty taxed by uh, day two of business meeting. Well, the great thing is um, that if if someone is listening to both of these podcasts, they can do so on two speed and not have to (laughs) bear with it as long. And they can always remember that I spent two whole days watching every moment of the Southern Baptist Convention <laughs> annual meeting, which is just, as I said last time, an extended business meeting for two days. And one of the <laughs> portions of this business meeting that takes up about more time than anything else is the portion on resolutions. Now, for those of you oh, who gosh. are new to the SBC, a resolution, um, and I'm reading directly from the, uh, the bulletin from the meeting, a resolution this is a quote, has traditionally been defined as an expression of opinion or concern as compared to a motion which calls for action. A resolution is not used to direct an entity of the Southern Baptist Convention to specific action other than to communicate the opinion or concern expressed. Resolutions are decided upon at the discretion of the Committee on Resolutions and can be submitted by individuals from qualified churches 45 days prior to the annual meeting, but no later than 15 days prior. And you can see SBC Bylaw 20 for other requirements concerning resolutions in the Committee on Resolutions, end quote. So so resolutions, <laughs> I, I was joking a little bit last time, Mitch, with you saying that on one level, these are just, it's just virtue signaling on behalf of the convention. But more realistically, it's the opinion of the messengers who are gathered at that meeting. And um, we might hear that the SBC passed a resolution and think that stands for all Southern Baptists, but we have to remember that there are 48,000 Southern Baptist churches, and there were only 15,000-something registered voter voting messengers at the annual meeting. So, so there's not even one messenger per church that's there. And so in one way, we need to take all of these resolutions, not as indicative of the entirety of the SBC, but of the majority of the group that voted for it on, on that particular meeting year. And what's also important about these resolutions is that they're time bound. So it's, it's and as I mean, just to highlight something you, you said just there, um, you know, this is not sort of like a statement of what the Southern Baptist Convention um, will believe for all time. Uh, it's a statement of sentiment of those gathered at that at, the, at that particular meeting. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and as as I read, it's just an expression of opinion or concern. So it it's not a motion that calls for action. It's not an amendment to a constitution or a statement of faith. And it's not an instruction given to one of the entities, whether that's the seminaries or uh, ERLC, the the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's it's nothing related to that. It's just an expression of opinion. So I like to think of it as just one massive tweet. Yeah, yeah, a highly structured tweet. And in the world of social media, um, these resolutions are kind of becoming more and more perfunctory and performative. Um, 
And that's no clearer, I think. I mean, I think the clearest example of that this year is with Resolution 9. Well, yeah, let me explain what what happened. Uniquely this year, for the first time ever in Southern Baptist history, there was a resolution made from the floor to rescind a previous resolution. And and so this individual was attempting to identify a resolution that that was met with some controversy from 2019 and wanted it to be rescinded, pulled pulled from the books in a way, erased as if it never happened. And um, the the resolution, the statue, as it were. yeah, the resolution in question is the infamous resolution nine on critical race theory and intersectionality, and this this resolution has been debated ad nauseum over the last uh, couple of years here. Um, the individuals who would love critical race theory probably hate this or just are not pleased with this resolution. Um, but those who absolutely hate critical race theory are also not pleased with it, even though it's actually probably working more to accomplish their desires than anything else. Uh, but but this resolution, the, there was a re- resolution to rescind this, and then other resolutions to rescind other resolutions from previous years. And... Um, that I'll I'll just explain explain briefly what happened in Mitch if you have anything else you want to throw in here yeah, on the rescinding of good. resolutions, um, feel free. But when when resolutions are made from the floor, there's a time that that is given towards this, and um, the moderator of the meeting, who is the president of the convention, really rules whether or not what takes place in those moments is in order or out of order, according to the rules of the convention and Robert's rules of orders. It doesn't matter what the content is of, of the motion or what's being said, really. It's just, are they following the right procedure in submitting it? And so, so this particular resolution to rescind a previous resolution was in order in terms of how it was made. But then as it was reviewed by the Committee on the Order of Business, along with a handful of others, it was just determined that this is not possible to do based on what was being asked. And so it's an out-of-order resolution or, or desire. And so it was ruled out of order. And there was some back and forth, a fiery moment. It wasn't actually that fiery. But, but the point is that it was interesting to me to watch individuals um, try to erase history in a sense, or or just to take yeah. away what happened, as if that's possible ever. Yeah, and I mean, it, it might be helpful just uh, for those trying to follow, um, just to kind of highlight essentially uh, on what happened on Tuesday was someone gave a motion uh, to rescind uh, resolution nine. And then today, that motion, while the motion was okay for him to make, it's okay to make a motion, but when that motion then began to be considered, it was ruled, it was out of order. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then that stirred a sort of uh, revival of this, of this sort of, well, hey, wait a minute, let's go back to the rules. Let's maybe even change the rules so that uh, we can actually go back in time and take this, strike this thing from the record. Uh, it was yeah. kind of funny the uh, the sort of appeals that were that were trying to be that were people were trying to make about it and I, it, and at a certain point it just kind of reveals such a a, a a deeply rooted kind of hatred for resolution nine and that resolution nine probably doesn't make anyone happy like it's helpful mm-hmm. to remember that you know if you if you really believe in critical race theory 
um, or critical theory more broadly, you're not happy with, with uh, Resolution 9. And conversely, if you hate critical race theory, uh, the fact that it is even being allowed as a, quote, um, helpful tool, analytic tool, um, is, uh, is also frustrating to you. Um, and so it, it really is, is um, no, I don't think anyone's really like, excited about it. Yeah, and, and I want to get into that a little bit more, but I think this highlights one of the challenges of 16,000 people in a room trying to give an opinion about really complicated and complex issues. And some resolutions that are brought forward are not complex at all. So for instance, there's one thanking, essentially thanking the city of Nashville for allowing them to meet yeah. in Nashville. Um, there's one that essentially says, we are resolved to mourn over those who died during the COVID pandemic. Well, these things are not complicated and any thinking Christian is going to say, this is right and good for us to do. Um, there, a resolution to mourn the persecution of the Uyghur people. You could come up with an infinite number of opinions that, that the convention could make that are not complicated. But there are also opinions that are put forward in resolutions that are very complicated. And uh, critical theory, critical race theory, intersectionality is one of them. And if you have tracked with our church podcast, um, back in October of 2020, uh, we did a a podcast on critical race theory and intersectionality, uh, but I I feel that um, in my not just emotionally, but but I think as I'm observing people talking about this, that the the way that uh, this language has been used, this nomenclature and terminology has been used, has turned into a a shotgun of meaning that sort of doesn't mean anything. In one way, I mean, it, it has a lot. It has meaning, but it's been bandied about so um, irresponsibly, perhaps that now it is more of a signal towards um, a a broader position on something than actually dealing with the tenets of that theory. But Mitch, you've spent some time uh, reading about this, talking with others about it. Uh, first, I want to ask, what's your feel in terms of a guy who's in um, Louisville, the heart of the Southern Baptist Convention, really, I think, and uh, in, in terms of how the Southern Baptist Convention is looking at this, and then maybe some suggestions for how to think clearly about it? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so many thoughts are coming to my mind. Um, but one of the things, I guess, that comes uh, just first is a lot of people in the Southern Baptist Convention seem to think that um, Dr. Moeller or some of the some of the teachers at Southern the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary um, here in Louisville, Kentucky, um, are like teaching critical race theory. And let me just put everyone's mind at ease. No one here even knows really what that is. And uh, no one's teaching it in classrooms. No one's no one's really even engaging with it on a on a deep level, which is probably unfortunate. But it's just it, so it's funny to me as as you know I hear outsiders talk about you know the sort of like left leaning left leaning or sort of like liberal tendency in the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I that's really confusing to me because. I mean, I have two two degrees from that institution, and there are things I like and things that I would want to change about the institution. But I never once did I even hear critical race theory um, in any sort of way 
Um, yeah, and, and at that, at that school. each each of the seminary presidents, sort of in their report, decried critical race theory and intersectionality. And then when one Danny right. Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, was asked whether or not the seminary was teaching critical race theory, his answer was, "Yes, we're teaching it so people understand it, but we're not advocating for it." Um, and mm-hmm. I have never been at Southeastern or Southern, but I can say in my experience at Midwestern that I've never um, had a professor suggest that we need to adopt critical race theory and intersectionality or critical theory more generally as a way mm-hmm. in which we view the world. Yeah, and it, it's just not even something that people are engaging with, honestly. And it, it's kind of funny that like those who aren't here and those who aren't really going to classes and interacting with professors. Um, I have a lot of friends who are professors at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And if you were to ask them, how would you define critical theory? How would you define critical race theory? They would have zero answers for you. <laughs> or they, or if they had an answer for you, it would be this kind of broad sort of um, kind of maybe hyper um, watered down version of it. That's just kind of, you would find as you were listening to the news or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's what's problematic, uh, and, and that's where it becomes more of a signaling what camp are you in, which is in itself really loosely um, outlined and clarified. Yeah. And I think these things, being pro, uh, pro-CRT or anti-CRT, then becomes equated to being woke or anti-woke or something like that, which is then equated to being racist or anti-racist. And I think these um, stark dichotomies with terminology, I I think it does more to conceal what's going on than than reveal what what actually is involved in these things. Yeah. And it might be helpful just to kind of place, like maybe even to spend a minute or so just kind of, tracing a little bit of critical race theory just to help us understand what it is we're kind of talking about. Um, when I think about critical race theory, there is that sort of pop definition uh, that we kind of get with our, you know, even, uh, it, you know, in the media or, you know, in our sort of gut reaction to what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it might be helpful just to try to define it historically a little bit. So um, I, when I think of critical race theory, I think I, it's helpful to kind of dig down on two levels. The first kind of, in its most recent history, it kind of has its roots in um, what's called uh, critical legal studies. So two mm-hmm. legal scholars, um, um, I can't remember their name right now, uh, Francinic and, and something else, um, and wrote about this back in the 2000s, I believe. Um, and uh, they, what they were trying to do is analyze how laws and structures of laws, systems of laws, uh, might inordinately affect um, certain groups. Now they're saying more than that, and they ended up writing later on and trying to like really capitalize on some of these ideas um, mm-hmm. more broadly. But at the end of the day, that it kind of had its roots in sort of that critical legal studies, um, kind of analyzing how laws and systems affect um, cultures and societies. Um, but more broadly, at kind of a more base level, it has its roots in sort of critical theory more broadly. And critical theory, more broadly, is um, is, a, is is a sort of a, way, a a new way of kind of looking at um, kind of old evidence. So, critical theory um, was usually applied to literature, um, mm-hmm. where maybe maybe we should read a, 
a piece of literature like The Great Gatsby, and maybe we're going to look at it as um, through certain lenses that are going to help us see things that we didn't see before. So maybe we'll look at, there's a sort of, so when you think of a critical theory, there are multiple different camps, right? You have like a Marxist critical theory, and they're going to try to read literature and society through like a very Marxist lens. There's a sort of psychoanalysis, sort of Freudian uh, critical theory that's going to look at both literature and society and try to see those sort of Freudian themes. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, the feminist critical theory, and you've got colonial critical theory, and you've got, you know, a bunch of others. And typically... Um, in critical theory, each one of these camps recognize that um, that they are competing with one another mm-hmm. when it comes to how you view certain things, right? So if you're going to read a piece of literature, um, like let's say The Great, Gats- Great Gatsby, are you going to read it as a sort of critique of sort of Marxist uh, class struggles? Are you going to read it as maybe a sort of psychoanalysis of different uh, conceptions of what love means, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a, so, so each one of these like lenses or each one of these sort of paradigms for what critical race theory is, each one of these camps are competing for ascendancy. And where you get in trouble is when one of these camps kind of becomes totalizing. Um, and I think that's what could happen and what maybe tends to happen in something like critical race theory where – um, what we have here, like it, like other you know uh, critical theories, is maybe a helpful lens through which you can almost think of a lens like a metaphor. You know, if I were to introduce you, Aaron, as um, as a wolf, I would you know if I were to like, whisper to you know one of our friends and say, "Hey, let me introduce you to to Aaron. He's a wolf," and I and I'm trying to equate you metaphorically with a wolf. That would sort of predispose the person I'm going to introduce you, uh, um, person I'm going to introduce you to. That would kind of predispose them to kind of see you in a certain lens, mm-hmm. like maybe you're a sort of cutthroat person, right? So that metaphor um, is going to highlight certain things about you, but it's also going to hide certain things about you, and that's what critical each one of these camps of critical and in, in sort of critical theory more broadly is going to do. It may at times it may it may highlight certain things about laws or justice Mm -hmm. or society more broadly that are helpful things to highlight. But in the process of highlighting certain things that maybe we didn't see before, it's also going to downplay or hide certain other features of laws or justice or society. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that's where we want to be careful, you know, when it comes to how we, how, how much we embrace just one sort of critical theory um, and how much that, and because we don't want our sort of metaphors to help us see things to become a sort of totalizing lens that prevents us from seeing anything else. Yeah. And, and I think that's right. We need to remember that not all critical theories are equal in their values or virtues. So there's probably more value in um, doing an exercise of reading a text with a post-colonial critical theory than there would be in reading that same text with queer theory, you know? So, so there are, uh, there's obviously more merits to some than others. And I, I think, you know, this is a little bit of, we're diving maybe in an uninteresting way for most people, because this is not the thing that, that the average individual is dealing with. So on, on the one hand, I think 
My experience as an English major was all the time we had to write essays reading a book with a through a particular critical lens. And I remember my final project was Lord of the Flies with a psychoanalytic critique, you know. So this is just something that in my world and experience, even at a, a really conservative Baptist college, they, they saw value in um, exposing us to these things and allowing us to engage in this. And I think that provides some level of discernment to where you learn not to adopt these critical theories wholesale, but you look at them as raising certain questions or shedding light on certain areas, and you can gain something from many of them, um, for, from some of them very, very little. And I think queer theory is a great example of that, where it's probably not nearly as helpful <laughs> as some of these others. And I think we should be able to say there's probably, on some level, some help from critical race theory in raising particular questions. I don't think that it does a good job of it answering those questions. And that's where it becomes problematic. I think the other problem is this right. theory more than many of the others is one that leans towards becoming a totalizing theory where um, I think some of these other uh, critical approaches are willing to say, yeah, we need multiple critical approaches. We just happen to be invested right. in this one because of our, our interest group. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And at the end of the day, you know, one of the, foundational principles of critical race theory or not critical race theory, but critical theory more broadly is, is, is sort of um, a, a sort of willingness to acknowledge that maybe we aren't able to see everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, so let me just go back to Thomas Aquinas, you know, so Thomas Aquinas, uh, a scholastic uh, philosopher who lived during the middle ages, uh, a very important Christian thinker, um, there's this famous quote from him from this from his big work entitled the Summa Theological or the Sum of Theology, um, and it, it goes something like, "Knowledge is received in the mode of the knower," mm -hmm. and we know this intrinsically, right? So, like, when if you were teaching to a group of people, um, and you know you had a little kid there, and your wife's there maybe, and you know someone you don't really know well, if you're trying to explain to them about you know history or whatever. Um, each one of them are going to receive that knowledge that you're giving them based upon their own sort of knowledge, their level of knowledge, their level of familiarity with certain topics. So each person is, is going to come away with some – they all heard the same lecture on history, but each person is going to come away with certain different things mm -hmm. because knowledge is received and a person, a, a person, the person affects his ability to hear, right, given his life experience or whatever. And so at the end of the day, a humility would acknowledge that maybe I need a, a, a Christian community of believers from different life experiences who can read the text of Scripture and it can help us see unique things that I wouldn't have seen before, mm -hmm. right? So I need, I need an elderly gentleman to be in the church reading Scripture with, with me, showing me things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, and he needs me as a, maybe a younger Christian, uh, reading the Bible along because so, things are going to become old hat for him. Right. And so he's, he's going to need to see with fresh eyes and that can be through younger Christians in the church. And the same with, you know, this is the same with, you know, we need women to read the Bible with us and to help us maybe, you know, they're going to pick up on certain things because of their life experience. Right. So recognizing the, that we as, as hearers, 
um, and as reader readers of scripture, don't have a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of everything that we read. There's no way where we can, there's no other way that we can possibly understand everything that there could possibly be to understand about the Bible mm-hmm. because we're limited by just our situation, our, our upbringing, the things, you know, our, you know, if, you know, if an accountant is reading um, some of those passages in Matthew about tithing, then the, an accountant is going to read those, ta- those passages differently than someone who, you know, has never learned about budgeting. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a, a basic principle. So reading there's a, a inside the community of the church, there's a wealth of help that can be given to the community as a whole. Um, when it comes to how we read scripture and the lenses through which we read scripture. Yeah. And um, that's just a really important feature. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I like that, especially in terms of reading the Bible, you emphasize the community of the church. But then I think we can expand beyond the church to to the average person because we believe in this thing called common grace where we can learn from the insights of others, either through professional experience or lived experience. And um, there are, of course, perhaps uh, pushes in a bad direction here in terms of a victimhood epistemology that would say you you can't truly know or you can't actually speak to an issue unless you've been an, a victim of the system that perpetrates that issue. And um, only that person can speak to that issue. And I think what we're trying to say is uh, they're going to have something to say that we need to hear, probably, especially if we haven't been in that position. But also, we should not then say that they are the only voice that should be heard. Um, but I think the challenge is that there's a, a reaction to this that says um, either exclusively only we want to hear you or there's sort of a, a stifling of those voices. Um, so I, I think we yeah. have probably gotten as far as we should in, in terms of this, since our main <laughs> um, task here is to review the second day of the meeting. But if you are interested in um, reading more about critical theory or critical race theory or hearing more about it, I'd love to give you some recommendations. A very easy one that I would send you to is to another podcast uh, by a guy named Cal Newport. And he's not a specialist in critical theory, but he studied art. And um, at the end of one of his podcasts uh, called Deep Questions, episode 17, for the last 20 or 25 minutes, he gives an impromptu history seminar on critical theory. And I thought it was interesting and engaging from someone who's not a believer, as far as I know, who's a professor at Georgetown University, and who I think is overall a fairly good thinker. Mitch, we've talked about critical race theory and intersectionality, and I think a lot of individuals came to the annual meeting thinking that this was going to feature more prominently than it actually did. And uh, I don't know if you saw anything or had any comments on that. Certainly the seminary presidents all addressed it. There were questions oriented to critical race theory, Uh, but there was nothing that maybe would have been as explosive or divisive as all of the social media and news media leading up to the event would have um, purported it to be. Yeah. At the end of the day, um, you know, the only thing that kind of approached that, I guess would be like resolution two for this year. Um, And resolution two was essentially just a statement kind of condemning 
um, any sort of view of human. It was very broad. It didn't include any labels like critical race theory or intersexuality or anything like that. And it was just kind of this broad statement of, of condemning any sort of ideology that's going to label um, the problem with humanity as something other than sin and the solution for humanity as something other than the gospel. Mm-hmm. So like a fairly like a generous reading of that is a pretty point blank fine. Everyone can agree on that. Um, but I think there was some def- there was definitely I mean based upon the discussion <laughs> there was some disappointment that critical race theory wasn't named specifically, um, and you know I you know one I think one person even stood up and said um, that uh, he you know he was disappointed that uh, he he came to this particular convention um, expecting that ideologies were were going to be discussed and he was frustrated that that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and to which I can only reply exactly what we talked about at the beginning, um, that maybe this isn't the place to have in-depth conversations. <laughs> yeah, it would have <laughs> been know, more like frustrating if it had happened. Yeah, that's a, that's right. And how many days would it take for 15,000 delegates representing like 48,000 churches to come to any sort of agreement about that? Um, especially because in the little bit of depth that we've, di- we've j- jumped in in this particular podcast – is 10 times deeper than any sort of conversation would have uh, that could be had in that sort of um, business meeting type mm-hmm. setting. Yeah, and for those who are who haven't ever observed one of these annual meetings, you might be wondering, well, if there were the right people leading the discussion, could it happen? And, and the answer is really no for, for several reasons, but one of them is because that there, there are time limits to everything. And there would just simply not be enough time to even talk about it at the same length that Mitch and I just did. And that certainly wouldn't have been a sufficient conversation um, anywhere. And uh, so so this resolution, too, was passed that uh, denied um, any worldview or theory that in, in critical theory would be included in there. Any, any theory or worldview that would see the primary problem of humanity is anything other than sin against God. And the ultimate solution is anything other than redemption found only in Christ. And I, I think um, some w- are thrilled with this. Um, others would be unhappy that it didn't, you know, specifically call out critical race theory. Others would be unhappy that it didn't um, resolve that theories could be used as analytical tools. So I just think, and again, it's another resolution that perhaps didn't bring as much delight, even though it was passed by the assembly. Uh, but other issues were facing the SBC as well. And one of them that was picked up and has been a matter of conversation is sexual abuse and the response to that mm-hmm. abuse. Mitch, I want you to frame this for us by just briefly explaining what the executive committee is and um, maybe painting a little bit of the picture of the problems and in, in controversy related to sexual abuse and response in the SBC up to this point. Yeah, well, part, I mean, part of the problem is there's been a little bit of a cloud over what's exactly has been said, and accusations have been made, um, and, you know, audio recordings have been released, but they're not, you know, those recordings don't contain all of the context of the conversation. Um, at the end of the day, the executive committee is kind of guiding and directing other committees and making decisions on behalf of the convention, um, and is essentially a ruling body. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a really important ruling body. And uh, they rule from rule. They, <laughs> they're not kings, but they, uh, they make their decisions from, you know, they usually meet for pretty regularly um, at, uh, usually in Nashville. Um, and in what the controversy as of late is, uh, revolves around, you know, those letters that we'd mentioned last time from Russ Moore and then some leaked audio by kind of his number two guy mm-hmm. at the ERLC, um, the ethics and religious liberty commission. Um, and those are accusing the executive committee of kind of slow balling and kind of, uh, holding up attempts by the RLC, um, to reveal and investigate uh, accusations of sexual abuse. And in the opinion of Russ Moore and of his uh, kind of number two guy who releases audio recordings, uh, I think his name is Philip Bathencourt, um, that is his name, um, is that this was done intentionally and out of a, out of a greater concern for the convention and the money that comes out of the convention and the power that comes with the convention than for any concern for actual abuse victims. Mm-hmm. And whether or not there's how much teeth these accusations have depend largely on how trustworthy you think a guy like Russ Moore is and what those audio recordings reveal. Um, in response to that sort of accusation, the executive committee right before this particular meeting announced that they were going to be hiring um, uh, this one organization called, has it Guidestone? I think uh, I can't remember. Guideposts. Uh, I think. Kind of Guidestone is the Guidepost. retirement deal, but Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Guidepost to do a sort of, um, to do an investigation. But the problem with that investigation is that it was the very people that should be investigated in the mind of a lot of people in the SBC as a result of these letters um, is the, the executive committee, but yet guidepost was going to be accountable to the executive committee. So um, one of the things that happened um, this year was that a third party investigation was kind of mandated uh, by, by, by vote um, I think I'm trying to remember how how it went down. Um, yeah, so I believe that there was a motion made on Tuesday for the for a task force to be brought together who would over kind of be the ones in communication with this third party investigator, and that the executive committee needed to give up their right of attorney or whatever else you know right of yeah. attorney. Pri- client privilege or whatever. And um, so when this was made, it was uh, just by default in the way that the SBC constitution is written. It was a a motion that was sent for deliberation. And I believe this is the right way of saying it to the executive committee. So the executive committee was going to determine whether or not to take action on this or not. And you can of course see the problems here um, the executive committee would have no reason to to take this course of action. And so an appeal was made uh, the next day by by one of the authors of, of this move. And uh, there was a two-thirds vote for this to go to the floor and to be determined by the convention, not next year, not by the executive committee, but by the convention 
this year in, in that past with um, really no one standing in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, frankly, wonderful news. I mean, taking, take, taking the investigation out of the hands of the very people who might need to be investigated um, is just a point blank, good idea. <laughs> and uh, you know, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, the Southern Baptist convention should be, um, maybe proud's not the right word, but at least happy that justice and uh, victims will be will be helped, and that justice will be ho- that hopefully justice will be served. I mean, time time will tell, but um, you know, I think we as if if you are a church in the Southern Baptist Convention, I think that this is good news. Although I do think that a lot of people in the Southern Baptist Convention um, are going to be fearful of 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 this decision um, for whatever reason, you know, a fear that, you know, um, p- political moves uh, inside the convention would result um, and turn into certain factions, right. Um, or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but at the end of the day, this is, this is great news that a, an independent third party is going to evaluate and dig into in a way that no individual church could do this, you know, as a pastor, at a church up in Minneapolis, you know, what can you really do mm-hmm. uh, to investigate these things and make sure that justice is done on a sort of national level? Um, it's hard. Yeah. And, and I have not tracked things well enough to even process all of the information that led up to this meeting and any of the issues relating to this. But uh, just as someone who was observing and hearing these things during those two days, it just seemed like a common sense thing to do. Um, I know there is probably some level of controversy because I believe a lady named Rachel Denhollander helped write this uh, motion and providing instructions for this investigation. And she's been heavily involved in, in sexual abuse issues um, in, in that area for some time. Uh, but from an outside perspective, I, I thought it just made sense. And it related to a resolution that was passed on abuse and pastoral qualifications. So one of the challenges yeah. the SBC yeah. faces is that often um, there have been pastors who sexually abuse tragically many individuals, and uh, these individuals, uh, for for a variety of reasons, either didn't report it or or um, a report was given and not taken seriously. And then these individuals remain pastoring in other places for a long period of time and, and continue these um, abuse sins of sexual abuse. And uh, because the SBC does not ordain pastors, it's not like it's a presbytery or a hierarchical denomination. It's a bottom-up denomination, not a, a top-down. In, in one right. way, the SBC doesn't get to revoke someone's ordination. Um, so there's been this complicating thing where where the convention can't handle this. Local churches have to handle it. Um, but there was a resolution passed that um, pastors, elders, overseers, and I think it's interesting here that all the titles are used, which sort of gives way to the kind of polity that we have at, at Resurrection Church, this elder-led congregationalism that maybe isn't shared by many in the SBC, but that pastors should be qualified by Scripture, and um, that any person who has committed sexual abuse is permanently disqualified from holding the office of pastor. 
and um, in that they recommend all affiliated churches apply this standard to all positions of church leadership. So this isn't just uh, the lead pastor or something like that, but any any item of church leadership. And the opinion given was that any person who's committed sexual abuse is permanently disqualified from serving a church in that way. Uh, Mitch, what did you think about this resolution? Um, I mean... It's a great resolution. I mean, it feels it feels it's unfortunate. It kind of needs to be said, you know, because it, it, in a church situation, you have to. I think every pastor needs to be sensitive to sort of the power dynamics at play. You know, you're a spiritual leader, someone that people look up to, someone that uh, people are going to be honest with, maybe even intimate with, in the sense that they might they might begin to share things with you that they wouldn't otherwise, and that you can't. Whenever you're sharing pieces of yourself to a sort of spiritual authority, um, you can't help but but kind of love and appreciate um, that person who you're giving yourself to. And so that creates a little bit of a, of a – pastors just need to be cautious about how they treat that. And any pastor that would abuse that sort of power structure, essentially, and would take advantage of the very people, his very, the very sheep that he's been charged to love and care for mm-hmm. – um, we should have serious questions about the ability of that pastor to maintain his job. Like for example, if you work in the stock market and uh, you are caught um, doing insider trading, then you lose your license to trade like ever, Hmm. (laughs) you know? So, you know, this standard of, of of professional sort of ethics um, does apply in other fields as well. You know, if you're a doctor and you do something, if you abuse one of your patients, you, you probably lose your license, you yeah. know? Um, so, it, you know, I, I understand that there may be some sensitivity uh, for some people who maybe would want to say, yes, I want to be hard on, you know, on sexual abuse, but I also feel that redemption needs to occur. Yes, redemption should occur. And we pray that all those who would be abusers would also repent of sin and confess that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they should, you know, they we, we want repentance to happen. We want redemption to happen, but redemption does not look like putting an abuser back in the same situation that yeah. he just abused. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I agree with you. I, I don't know that forgiveness in, in terms of someone who's repented and, and restoration means restoration to that position or to a ministerial role. I, I think we make decisions of prudence, and uh, it would just be prudent not to per- pursue that. Um, I think there are yeah. challenges here. The, the statement was worded that any person who has committed sexual abuse is permanently disqualified. And um, obviously, one of the, the big challenges in, in bringing this standard forward is that the proof of these things is often lacking. And um, often when accusations are made, it's past statutes of limitations and these other things. Um, so in, in the end, we have to recognize this in, it's an opinion. It's a right opinion but how it actually gets fleshed out over time and in churches ac- across the, the nation is p- probably challenging, especially if churches have no idea that, that they're calling a pastor who has committed this sin. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, why we hate all resolutions, just as like a matter of principle, uh, because of all the reasons we've, we've explained, 
there's something behind this one that we have, you know, this one and a few others, you know, that we have to at least acknowledge, Hey, the sentiment here is something I can put my, put my name about. And if that's what a resolution is, a sentiment that we agree with or don't, then okay. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think that this illustrates the uh, what what the resolutions are intended to do. It's intended to express a sincere opinion um, that needs clarification, sadly, but probably has positive results, both for those who have been abused sexually, and it, it's a good warning to all, all passers and all those in church leadership. And so it, this one does something good that I don't think is purely virtue signaling. Um, Some of the others, I think so, but we shouldn't probably just discount all resolutions is your, is your pointing out. (laughs) Well, Well, and that, you know, the one, well, did you want to talk about any others or? I I was just going to really briefly mention that there, if, if you tuned into the meeting or were catching news reports there, there was a resolution relating to abortion um, that was a matter of some debate, not because Southern Baptists um, are for abortion, uh, but just because the resolution was written in such a way that any incremental um, work against abortion should just be rejected, essentially, because it's not completely outlying abortion. And as several ethics professors and others spoke to this matter, it was just really clear that the incremental approach is um, not the ideal, the ideal would be for abortion to stop today. Um, but as, as many liberals have said in some places, these, you know, raging conservatives have essentially outlawed abortion through all these incremental measures. And so we see it's effective. We don't want to stop doing that. We don't want to tell someone you're, you're not being faithful to God if you're supporting a, a, a legislative move that, that incrementally reduces the amount of abortions that can happen. So all in all, I, I don't think it, it was amended in a way that was not probably satisfactory to anyone once again, and it passed, yeah. um, but it, it sort of did circumvent that issue. Was there anything else, Mitch, you thought was worth talking about on that resolution? Um, I, I think the only point would, you know, I think there's probably should be a difference between political strategy for how we achieve our goal and arguing about the goal and to confuse the two. Because at the end of the day, we, I think, most pretty much everyone in the Southern Baptist Convention would agree what the goal is. The goal is that no human life would be sacrificed on the altar of abortion. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the disagreement is how do we get there? Do we get there by passing laws that say no abortion ever? Well, in a secular society where that we all live in, in the city of man, it, it's going to be hard to do that. So should we just give up or, maybe a secondary approach is good. Let's have an incremental sort of approach where we are slowly chipping away at the foundation of any sort of political structure that would allow for, um, you know, abortion. Mm-hmm. And I, there's room for good people to disagree about, about some of this. And at times certain strategies might be more important than others, but to sort of car- like uh, across the board, um, chastise anyone who would want to vote for kind of a incremental approach to um to achieving this goal i think is just politically silly yeah and and like you're saying we have statements of faith for the church community and then some of these resolutions that are targeting the the larger civilization we just recognize that we're we're not on our home turf here 
And so we we operate in this world seeking to be wise and prudent and godly, but we also recognize that in, until Jesus comes, we're always um, engaging in what might be accused of as being half-baked measures or compromising positions. But but compromise really is the key to politics. And so you, you uh, go incrementally and you get as much as you can. And you just know, in, unless we are going to turn into a Christian military state, we're just not going to be able to have everything we, we think God would want for this nation and, and for any nation. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily opposed to the Christian state idea, um, but it would <laughs> oh, uh, it would it, <laughs> it would be a it would be hard to achieve. Well, I'll give you that one. Yeah, at least prior to Jesus's return, that will be I think impossible to achieve. Um, but that sounds like something we can talk about another time, Mitch. Perhaps another podcast. Yeah, or or maybe it's not even worthy of that. I I kind of wonder. <laughs> um, Mitch, were there any other comments or issues pertaining to day two of the the meeting that you would think is helpful for people to know about or for us to talk about here? Um, one thing that you know might just be helpful for your congregation um, is uh, I think it's becoming more and more clear uh, based upon interviews with the new president, Ed Litton, um, that he really is just a probably a thoroughgoing moderate candidate in the sense that um, a lot of the issues that both candidates on either side, I mean, thoroughly conservative candidate, but a lot of the issues that were kind of passionate, the, the candidates on either side of him were passionate about, he is kind of embracing a sort of middle middle road between some of those things. Um, you know, so, you know, for example, on, you know, one candidate, Mike Stone, was really all the candidates, I guess, were like pretty anti-critical race theory and really wanting to bring the bring the convention completely away from that and really dig into uh, resolutions that would chastise those that participate in critical race theory. Mm-hmm. But Ed Litton is kind of known for his desire and, and sort of activity towards uh, racial reconciliation. Um, and so, you know, for example, at his church, he has a, like a rec- racial recognition, uh, reconciliation Sunday where he and a uh, black pastor named Fred Luter, who was also at one time the president of the, of the um, Southern Baptist Convention, kind of switched churches and, and preached to each other's congregations um, mm-hmm. in a desire to kind of bridge those guys. So he's engaged in that conversation. He's talking about it. And I think a lot of, uh, or some far, far right conservatives in the Southern Baptist Convention are upset by that uh, because to them it feels like a sort of nod to critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where Ed, uh, our new president, um, is probably is probably going to be challenged over the next you know year of his service, um, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, uh, you know because there is a, probably a biblical way where we as a church can engage on matters of race, um, and 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 at least be engaged with what it means to. Um, be reconciling uh, with one another as well as being reconciled with God, right? Um, so I think that's something to look look for in this next year to see, you know, how how will his leadership um, of and his desire to try to bridge gaps um, between people um, kind of play out in, certain, in terms of policy and 
um, things that he's uh, initiatives that he's kind of going to be advocating for. Yeah, and I in that way I don't know that he's that different from the immediately previous president of the convention, J.D. Greer. I I don't know very much about our new president or really that much about our former president, but I just sort of imagine <laughs> that they're very similar in a lot of things. Both, you know, I think multi-site, mega-churchy pastors. Um, I, I just get the feeling that there's not that much distinction between uh, the presidencies. Uh, you probably could be right on some things. Uh, you know, obviously J.D. Greer's of a slightly different generation, uh, and so with that comes like a maybe a unique way of framing some of these, um, you know, sensitivities. Sure. Uh, but you know, in terms of broad scope, you're probably about right. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see. There's one final thing that I want to talk about, and and that's what I started talking about at the beginning, and that is that there were 16,000 messengers at the annual convention meeting, and that's a historic number. Uh, but there are 48,000 churches in the SBC, and one of the unique features is that to vote, you have to be there, and you have to be in the room. And there have, over the years, as technologies develop, been multiple pushes to allow for off-site or remote-site voting. And there was even a, a resolution that was proposed for the um, for the convention to make Nashville the permanent meeting site and then set up site locations across the country. Um, Mitch, is it good or bad or indifferent for the, for physical presence to be required? at the site of the annual meeting to be able to have your church represented? Oh, there's probably, I mean, there's probably pros and cons um, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, if this is like a national election, I would say, you know, if we were voting for, you know, in sort of a political way, um, you know, then I would say, obviously, you know, physical presence is probably important. Um, but... You know, for something that is supposed to speak for everybody, like if you're a pastor of a small church and maybe they can't afford to send you, or maybe they can't afford to send, you know, let's say your church is sending five, six, seven messengers and not everyone can afford to go. Uh, so are you just deprived of those votes uh, because maybe you're a financially small church? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that would be an issue, right? So, you know, I, there's probably pros and cons to, you know, both positions. I, do you have an opinion on uh, on what that should look like? You know, I do have an opinion, and it's probably not <laughs> worth very much. But I, I do think it's a little bit troubling that anything that happens at that annual meeting is supposedly representative of the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and right. most of the churches are not there. And um, that, I think, is problematic. And so I think it would be good to brainstorm and find... I, th I thought this, the idea of regional sites where it would be cheaper and more efficient for churches to show up at, um, they're already live streaming the thing, and they put a lot of money into that production. And, um, yeah. and, and that production itself yeah. influences the way people talk in the speeches that are given, because it's not just for the people in the room and, and it's not just for Southern Baptist churches. It's for the media and anyone else who's logged, who, who, who's watching that video. But there, there's certainly the ability for there to be regional sites where people could gather and vote. It would definitely slow some things down. 
um, if they keep using paper ballots, but if they went to electronic ballots, then you don't have to just look and read the room. Everyone on everything could just enter very quickly, and and there could be just very a little app on the phone, a little yeah, yes, uh, yeah, or, yeah, or nay. Yeah, I mean, there's already an SBC app that's it, that's being used, so I think there's probably the technology available. But um, as Knowing the SBC, I think we're a solid 250,000 years from using technology in that sort of a productive way. Yeah, <laughs> based on the fact that they were counting ballots, um, like 15,000 ballots to vote on whether or not to extend a period of discussion for 10 minutes. Um, oh, yeah. Because that happened, I think you're correct. Um, you should also, we should, you know, you should, go, you should attend and you should start off you should do a motion on Monday or on Tuesday and uh, motion to have, uh, you know, to do a, do a multi-site, do a multi-site SBC. Hey, somebody did that this year. So we'll see what the uh, executive committee or whoever that was designated to you. We'll see what they decide. <laughs> um, but despite all of the controversy, I think that there were some, um, great, great moments of seeing the Lord working in the SBC, whether it was through the report on the International Mission Board or NAM. And, and of course, all of these can be heard a little bit cynically as there's a little bit of a numbers game that goes on there. Um, but but I yes. think there's also uh, a recognition that there are good and profitable and godly things that are happening because the Southern Baptist Convention exists. Um, so we, we can pray for the Southern Baptist Convention. Mitch, any closing words for us as we wrap up our consideration of SBC Annual Meeting 2021? No, I think that's exactly right. At the end of the day, um, everything that happened in the last few days could be read cynically. And uh, part of us, you and I, want to read it that way. Um, but the reality is it's a mixed bag. And uh, there's there's a net positive, I think, for um, you know a, the largest denomination that's still in, in the United States that preaches the gospel. Um, you know, so that... It, it, you know, God can use flawed instruments to achieve his glory. Amen. That's, that is correct. And he continues to use the SBC. He continues to use us and your church, Mitch, where you attend at Third Avenue Baptist Church. But let's all be praying that God would use this next year uh, in, in incredible ways for our good and his glory. And whether that's through Christians who are part of the SBC or Christians who are not, uh, we believe that, that God can work and will continue to do so. Mitch, thanks for joining me on this podcast. It's been great to be here. I'm sure I'll, I won't be here for a while. Your church has probably heard enough of me, but so thankful to be here. <laughs>